0: Good morning. There is a church in downtown Chicago. It is on Washington Street between Clark and Dearborn. It's the United Methodist Church of Chicago. But one of the things that it is renowned for, the church was founded in 1831. They were in downtown Chicago for the balance of the 19th century. Shortly after World War I, their denominational leadership encouraged them to leave downtown and move to the suburbs where they could have a larger plot of land that was less expensive the church considered that move, and in in the early 1920s, they decided that they were committed to the heart of the city. And so they doubled down on, on being in downtown. They hired renowned architects in Chicago by the name of Holabird and Roche, and they built what is admittedly an oxymoron. They built a Gothic skyscraper. It is a building that has 21 floors. The bottom floor is an auditorium that seats 1,000 people. Floors two, three, four, and 5 are church offices and smaller chapels and classroom spaces. Then the next 15 floors are office spaces that the church um, leases to uh, a variety of companies that, that call this building their home. And then the top floor, the 21st floor is a chapel that they call Sky Chapel. It is a place of worship that um, is more than 400 feet above the busy streets of Chicago. But on top of Sky Chapel is a Gothic church spire that reaches 568 feet into the air. And on top of that spire is a cross. It is one of the tallest crosses in the world. It had been there for nearly a hundred years, but on one particular day, the story is told of traffic in front of Chicago Temple stopping dead in its tracks. Pedestrians began to look up and and, and, and stop in their, in their midday stroll from whatever building in downtown Chicago they were, they were leaving from to go to the next one, commuters put their cars in park and got out. And as the crowds assembled, all looking up, what they were watching was a repairman who was dangling from the cross 568 feet in the air. Doing some repairs on the cross because of some storm damage. Traffic stopped for an hour as people watched the worker as he hung there. One of the rectors in the church said they've walked past that cross for nearly a hundred years and nobody noticed. But they took notice as soon as there was a man hanging on it. We are in the twelfth chapter of the Gospel of John. And we're going to find an interesting, an interesting incident that becomes a platform for Jesus to give us a statement. A statement that I, I can't I can't fully get my my mind, my arms wrapped around it. Everything that Jesus said is uh, significant as, as every word of, of of the Bible is significant. But this is one of those statements that Jesus said that I that I, I just pray that it doesn't drift back into the fog of my bad memory. But that it stays in the front of my Front of my brain. In the passage that we're going to look at today, there's really two things in particular. One uh, that I want you to see, but then the other, we're going to look at this statement that Jesus gives us. But the story begins with a group without name, a small group of Greek speaking Gentiles. They've come to Jerusalem with the hundreds of thousands of other people who have gathered in preparation for the Passover. The Passover will be on that Sabbath at the end of the week, Friday night to Saturday, but they've arrived in plenty of time so that they'll have time to go through ritual cleansing, so they won't be disqualified from the Passover. So this entire week that Jesus is now in Jerusalem is filled not only with Jerusalem residents, but the residents of Bethany and Bethphage and Berea, uh, and all of the all of the surrounding uh, villages in Judea, but also. Both Jews and Greek-speaking God-fearers, that's what they were called, they've all come to this place and Jesus is there. Now, in the 12th chapter, we looked at the triumphal entry last Sunday. The triumphal entry happens on Sunday. What, what John is going to take us to today happens on Tuesday, but I'm going to go to the other gospel writers Uh, And and we're going to see what happened on Monday because it plays into what John tells us. Let's begin in John chapter 12. I'm going to begin reading in verse 20. Now, there were some Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. These people then came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and were making a request of him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew. Then Andrew and Philip came and told Jesus. Jesus. But Jesus answered them by saying, "'The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. The one who loves his life loses it, and the one who hates his life in this world will keep it to eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also.'" If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now my soul has become troubled, and what am I to say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came out of heaven, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. So the crowd who stood by and heard it were saying that it had thundered. Others were saying an angel has spoken to him. Jesus responded and said, this voice has not come for my sake, but for yours. Now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. Now let's stop right there, because I want to I talk about what I've called petition, prediction, promise, and proof. Let me tell you about this story. The reason why we need to go drop back into the other Gospels, for example, Mark chapter 11. In Mark 11, we know that the triumphal entry was on Sunday, and John told us that that Jesus went to the temple and he looked around and he saw everything and then they withdrew to Bethany for the night. Now John picks up the story on Tuesday, but he leaves out Monday. In Mark chapter 11, we find out that when Jesus came back to the temple in Jerusalem on Monday, he went immediately to the temple, the place that he had just gone to on Sunday, and sort of surveyed the situation. What he found was that the temple had reverted to a common practice of his day and time. The temple was built so that the Holy of Holies was the place where where God was said to dwell. Outside of the Holy of Holies was the place where the sacrifice occurred and the Jewish men were allowed into that court. Outside of that was what was called the court of the women, and Jewish women could, could enter into the temple that far outside of that was called the court of the gentiles now the jews had lost interest in in bringing uh, bringing gentiles to their god but god never lost interest in that what the jews had done was they had taken the court of the of the gentiles the largest section of the uh, of the temple large because that was supposed to be the space reserved for the nations to flood into Jerusalem and into the temple to worship the one true God. Israel's distinctiveness, their their testimony of their very existence was designed to put God on display. And as the nations were drawn to the temple, there was this largest of the courtyards, designed for the nations but here's what had happened the jews saw that as wasted space so they took advantage of it now one of the things in the ancient world because of their uh coming out of the exile the the, the jews really had uh, one of the lessons they learned in the exile was avoid idolatry at all costs i mean uh, they learned that lesson Well, one of the things that that, that flowed out of that was they created their own currency for the temple because Roman money were all stamped with what? An image of Caesar. The the Jews viewed that money as being, uh, in a sense, an idol. And so what happens is, in order to... give offerings at the temple, you had to come into the court of the Gentiles. And before you went further into the temple, you could stop and there would be bankers set up with tables and they would change your money at a favorable rate of exchange for the bankers. But you would bring your Roman money, they would give you temple money, and then you could go in and and give your money with no idolatry attached to your gift. So to make it convenient for worshipers, they'd set up the bankers right there in the court of the Gentiles. Also, when you came to the temple, often you came prepared, not just to give an offering, but to make a sacrifice. But if you were coming from out of town, the, the, the temple decided to make it easy on you. Instead of bringing uh, a lamb or, or a goat or a bull or a cow or, or whatever all the way from where you lived, you could wait until you got to the temple. And there in the court of the Gentiles, they had corrals, pens filled with sheep and goats and, and cattle and, and even the odd bull if you were, if you were in for the, 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 the top-level sacrifice. And you could buy the animal. They'd already been inspected, you know, as sort of a, you didn't have to worry about it having a flaw or a blemish. You know, this was a turnkey approach to church. Everything was right there. You could just get what you need. It's as convenient as possible because the temple, they're making money. Well, so Jesus comes. And he thinks the court of the Gentiles, this is where the nations Have been invited to find God. And we've turned it into a flea market. It's an Oriental bazaar. Animals making noise, the, the smell of a barnyard, money changers doing their banking business. On Monday, Jesus goes into the temple and, to put it lightly, causes a ruckus. He turns over tables. He, he drives animals out of the temple. Um, he generally scolds the people are, that are there. Why? Because this, this space had been dedicated from the moment it was conceived to be a place of prayer where the nations could find God. And they had turned it into what Jesus called a den of thieves. Okay, that happens on Monday. On Tuesday, there is a group. They're Greek speakers, probably God-fearers. Now, God-fearer, that's a term that was, that was just to describe a Gentile who worshiped the true God but hadn't come all the way into Judaism. In effect, what it usually meant was they'd never been circumcised. So they, weren't full, they didn't have full standing as Jews, but they worshiped the, the God of the Jews. And, and so they were there, and they were called God-fearers they were supposed to worship in this barnyard that was meant to be the court of the Gentiles. In my sanctified imagination, these people had come from Bethsaida. Now, Bethsaida is, um, is a village in that part of the world that, was probably, that probably had the highest percentage of Gentiles of any of the, of the villages within Judea. Um, there's a couple of reasons for that, but, but they, they spoke Greek there. Um, and so they hadn't come far, but they had come from, uh, a Greek background and they'd made their way. The reason the, 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 town there is mentioned, well, I'm getting ahead of myself. They come to the temple and here they are to worship, but, but it's like trying to worship in, in the middle of a stockyard. They may have been there when Jesus came on Monday. Sometime between Monday and Tuesday, it dawns on them. He did that for us. We're the people that that court was designed for to come worship the true God. He cleared it out for us. And so on Tuesday, they come to the temple to worship. And they find one of his followers. His name was Philip. Now, the reason they came to Philip is it says for two reasons. Well, it, one it says, and the other we can assume. First of all, Philip was a Greek name. In fact, Philip and Andrew were the only two disciples that followed Jesus that had Greek names. The rest of them all had Hebrew or, or Jewish names. So they find one of the two disciples that had a Greek name. They find out that Philip was from Bethsaida. That may have been where they came from. And they take their shot. These are followers of Jesus, but this one may have a little bit of inclination to listen to Greek-speaking Gentiles like us. And they go and they find Philip, and they say this, Sir, we would see Jesus. Now that's just a, a traditional way of saying, could we have an audience? Does Jesus have five minutes that we could meet him. Well, <laughs> Philip doesn't know exactly what to do, so he does make a good decision. He goes to Andrew. Now, the reason that's a good decision is because if we could do a biographical lesson on Andrew, all the way through the four Gospels, but particularly in the Gospel of John, Andrew is painted over and over and over again as the guy the one of the 12 more than any of the others who regularly brought people to meet Jesus. In fact, Andrew's the one that found the boy that had the five loaves and the two fishes and he brought him to Jesus. That whole miracle of feeding the 5000 plus happens because Andrew while the while the disciples are over here huddled about about what needs to happen, Andrew is out in the crowd shaking hands and meeting people. Well, Philip brings these Greek-speaking Gentiles who want to meet Jesus. He comes to Andrew and explains the situation. And Andrew does what Andrew does. He says, well, let's go see Jesus. Now, that's as far as the Greeks in this story go. John doesn't tell us the finish. But in my sanctified imagination, I think they got their audience with Jesus. Because it's just like Jesus To see interruptions as divine appointments, and to make his way to be available when people come to him, and want to talk to him, he wasn't a celebrity that said, "No, I'm busy. No, I'm 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 leaving the building. I'm out. I don't have time for you." I think they got their their visit with Jesus, and I in my imagination, I have a whole storyline of what happens with these Greeks who, who I like to think became followers of Jesus. But John doesn't tell us the whole story. All he does is tell us the, the, the request because he's using that request from non-Jews in Jerusalem to set up this, this brief little speech that Jesus gives uh, that sets the stage for the whole rest of the week. In this, they they come and, and talk to Jesus, and, and this is his response, verse 23. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now see, Jesus has not been shy about identifying himself as the Messiah. He's had conversations all the way back to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, but he's had conversations with the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4, others throughout, with the, especially the Pharisees. But he often told his followers, don't go around telling people I'm the Messiah, because it was not that he was hiding the fact, but it was a matter of timing. It was a matter of not jumping the gun on how this drama of redemption was unfolding according to the plan of the Father. But here, these Jews, I mean these non-Jews, these Gentiles, have come to see Jesus and Jesus says, there it is. There it is. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. It's time. The whole world. It's not just that He came for the Jews. He'd already told us that, that there were others not of that family that were going to follow him. The Jews had forgotten about the whole rest of the world, but God never did. There was always a plan. It wasn't plan B. It wasn't a follow-up. It was always God's plan, going all the way back to the beginning, when he called Abraham out of paganism and said, you're going to follow me. I'm going to give you a, a son. It will become a mighty nation, and the whole world will be blessed through you. The whole world, that's always been the plan. And here we are, it's happening. And then Jesus says, truly, truly, amen, amen. Listen up, He says. I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. We're going to talk in just a minute about the limitations of His ministry in Palestine. But after he died, the scope of that ministry became universal. There's a promise here. The one who loves his life loses it, and the one who hates his life in this world will keep it to eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Here Jesus is saying, If we follow Jesus in this life, we get to follow him all the way into his presence in the next life. But here's what I want you to see. John doesn't include in his story an event that isn't going to happen for a couple of more days. The other gospel writers tell us about where Jesus went after he was with the disciples in the upper room. Before he goes to the cross on Friday, before he's arrested, he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane. And there he basically settles for the last time this issue of obedience. He says, Father, if there's any way that this can be taken from me, if this cup can pass from me, uh, that'd be wonderful. But he he ends it with the the affirmation, but not my will, but your will be done. Well, John is going to give us his version of that. Now, now, it makes sense that this would be, uh, a, if you've ever had to to, to battle tempt the temptation to to not trust God. It's hardly ever a battle that is won in a single fight, because the enemy keeps coming at you. So it's not unusual that what Jesus settled in the Garden of Gethsemane on on Friday night, uh, I mean on Thursday night, would not be. Um, would not be contradictory to this happening on Tuesday. He says this, now my soul has become troubled. He says deep down inside of me, I'm, I'm churned up. I mean, he knows this is the last week. He knows what the end of the week holds. He says, my soul has become troubled. And what am I to say? Father, save me from this hour? It's a rhetorical question. Jesus is talking to himself. He says, I'm churned up inside because, because of what's ahead of me. But what should I be praying right now? Father, get me out of this? No. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. In the same way that in Gethsemane, Jesus says, if you can take this cup from me, that'd be great, but your will, not my will. In the same way, here he's talking to himself. I'm troubled. I'm, I'm stressed. I'm, I'm deeply uh, uh, churned up inside about what's coming. What should I pray? Father, save me? No! I came for this purpose. So instead, this is what he prays. Father, glorify your name. Listen, it, it, when you and I are trying to learn Christ-likeness, honestly, one of the most difficult lessons of Christlikeness likeness. It's to come to the place where whatever we face, whatever crisis is going on, whatever medical or family issue or job issue or, or whatever, whatever our storm happens to be, our normal inclination is, God, give me some relief. Get me out of this. God, take this problem away. God, smooth out these difficulties. But we have gone to another whole level of Christ-likeness when in the middle of our difficulties we learn to say, but Father, glorify Your name. That's where Jesus was. This is powerful. And and, and then this is what happens. Then a voice came out of heaven. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. So the crowd stood by and heard it The crowd who stood by and heard it were saying that it had thundered. Others were saying an angel has spoken to him. Jesus said, this voice has not come for my sake, but for yours. Jesus hears the voice of the Father audibly three times, or it's recorded for us three times in his ministry. It happened at his baptism. It happened at the transfiguration. The uh, The voice came at the baptism and said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. The voice came in the transfiguration and said, listen to him. And here the Father is saying, I have answered that prayer that my name would be glorified and I'm going to do it some more. And then Jesus said this. Verse 31, now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. I don't want you to blow past that and miss it because he's talking about the devil. He's talking about the devil. He calls him the ruler of this world. But here's the thing about the devil: we have this idea that is wrong—that the devil is still in charge of things around here. We have this idea that the devil is the king, that the devil uh, is is on the throne of this world. And I'm telling you that that may have been that may have been an accurate statement at one point. But Jesus said he doesn't say, "When I come to the cross, when I settle the issue, when I conquer death." He doesn't say the devil is going to begin to lose his influence. He doesn't say that the devil is going to become less and less significant. In fact, if anything, it looks like the devil's more and more active now than he's ever been before. But what Jesus did say is the time is imminent. This king or so-called king, I'm about to kick him off of his throne. He's about to be exiled. And the worst that he's going to be able to do is as an exiled king, he's going to try and foment rebellion from outside the, the kingdom. There's a lesson here. And we've got to think about this. The church of our generation has to quit acting like we have to keep a low profile because we don't want to upset the devil. We've got too many churches that want to go along to get along because they want the devil to just not notice them. Well, he doesn't notice them. He doesn't need to notice them because they're not making any difference. He's a dethroned king living in exile And everything that you see around us today, globally in our generation, is nothing more than a deposed king trying to stir up problems from exile, and his days are numbered. we got to quit acting like we're afraid of the king. We serve the king. Let's be the church. And then here's the other thing. This is where I want us to spend the rest of our time this morning. Verse 32 and 33. Jesus said, The ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Now, he was saying this to indicate what kind of death he was going to die. Jesus is speaking here at a couple of levels. At the most obvious level, he's talking about physical elevation. He says, I'm going to die on a cross. They're going to physically elevate me. But there's another whole meaning for us 2,000 years later. Jesus says, if I am raised up, if I am lifted up by my followers, if I am put on display, I will draw all men to myself. Let's talk about this because we have the lifted up Lord here and He stands alone historically. I've spent some time with this verse, this whole passage, but particularly this verse this week and it I, 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 can't, I can't wrap my mind around it. And so I've tried to think about it in terms of, uh, uh, of anybody else in all of human history that might say such a thing. I mean, the, the, in the Greek, the, the word I there is emphatic. And that's why it's translated, and I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. This is a statement of sublime egoism. There's a kind of boundless boldness in this remark. Jesus is always like that. He makes statements we would permit no other person to make. He gets by with affirmations that we would not allow from anyone else. We would not only permit these statements from Him, we honor Him for them. He says things all the way through Scripture like, I, and I alone am the light of the world. He told Mary and Martha in John chapter 11, I and I alone am the resurrection and the life. Here, I and I alone, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to me. We let him say that. Have you ever considered how ridiculous such statements would be on the lips of anyone else? The words of Jesus that attract us to him would repel us from anyone else. Think about all of the great world religious leaders in history. Muhammad died in 632 A.D., died in his bed of a fever in the city of Medina. He left us with the remark, there is one God, Allah, and Muhammad his prophet. But it would be ridiculous if he had said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to me. Islam, by contrast, tries to compel, tries to drag, tries to drive men to their God. Buddha died in 480 B.C. He rejected his own followers before his death. It would have been an absolute absurdity for him to have said, and if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. Confucius died a year later, 479 B.C. in ancient China, Lu province. He said, our salvation rests only in understanding our past. It would have been foolhardy for him to say, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. We do not permit other religious leaders to make the statements which we receive with reverence from Jesus. What about political leaders? Alexander the Great died in 323 B.C. at the age of 33. Another man who sought to drive all men to himself. Even in our own history, we have... Men like Washington and Lincoln, whose memories we honor. Men like Roosevelt and Reagan, whose names we respect. Had they said such things as Jesus, we would have accused them of blasphemy and impeached them from office. Not even the best followers of Jesus could talk that way. The apostle Paul wrote a dozen letters in the New Testament. He had four missionary journeys. But if after everything that he did, the greatest theologian and church planner in the first century, if Paul had ended his life with the last words, and I, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to Myself. We would have ripped His letters for the New Testament. We would have forgotten His influence and rejected His message. We would have considered Him at the end a traitor to the cause of Jesus Christ. Dwight Moody, Charles Spurgeon, George W. Truett, Billy Graham, if any of them had dared to make this statement, they would have drawn our immediate scorn and rejection. Then in a celebrity culture like ours, there's always the beautiful people. We're used to people in our culture making egotistical statements about themselves. It's commonplace today. It may have started back with Muhammad Ali who affirmed that I am the greatest. From there, Reggie Jackson, playing for the New York Yankees, said, I'm the straw that stirs the drink. Athletes and movie stars and Singers and millionaire bachelors. They often declare a kind of egotism that amuses us or repulses us. We laugh at them. We dismiss them because we do not take them seriously. But there is one individual in the history of mankind able to make a statement like this. And I, if I am lifted up, will draw all men to myself. We receive that statement with reverence and respect. We call him the Son of God because he is Jesus Christ the Lord. Only he can say that. It is he and he exclusively that is to be lifted up to a place of preeminence. No one can be allowed to compete with him. It can't be Christ and anything else. As proud as I am to be a part of Evergreen, it cannot be Christ and my church. As privileged as I am to be your pastor, it cannot be Christ and my pastor. I hope to deserve dignity, but I do not deserve divinity. I hope for your respect, but I do not want your reverence. I hope that you will follow me, but I do not want you to worship me. It is not Christ in my pastor. It is not Christ in my church. It is not Christ in my cause. It is not Christ in my political party. We lift up Him alone. The sublime, lonely, solitary, single, peerless oneness of it all. Jesus. And Jesus alone. We give Him the peerless place He deserves. Only Christ. Christ. The lifted up Lord draws to himself magnetically. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. It's interesting as he faces the cross, we realize that death puts an end to the career and influence of other men. But death was just the beginning of a universal influence for Jesus. We value other men for their lives, but we value Him because of His death. The cross was fatal to other men, but it was central to Him. Christ was lifted up on the cross of Calvary. We read about the shame and the humiliation attached to that. But in Philippians chapter 2, Paul takes a different perspective. To die on a cross was not only the most horrific way of execution ever invented by a human beings for other human beings but it was also a death of shame as you were typically crucified naked and exposed for the whole world to mock and abuse paul talks about that in philippians chapter 2 He says, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, as he already existed in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. You see, the incarnation was God, God the Son, voluntarily laying down some of the prerogatives and privileges of being God. Why? He emptied himself by taking the form of a bondservant. It was quite a condescension for God to become man, but he didn't become any man. He could have become a king, but he didn't. He became a bondservant, a slave, a working man, a blue-collar sort of fellow. But that wasn't enough. He not only became a bondservant, being born in the likeness of men, but also being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. God becomes man, but not just any man. He becomes a humble man. A humble man who became an obedient man. But not just any obedience. He became obedient to death. But not just any death. He became obedient to death even on a cross. From the throne of heaven itself, there is a downward spiral all the way to a cross covered with the wrath of God on sin it is inconceivable when we try and ponder it but Paul says it doesn't end with the cross he takes that word that Jesus uses in John 12 32 if I be lifted up. He takes that Greek word and he employs it in this verse. He says, "...for this reason God also highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father." He's using the same Greek word to tell us that this one who came all the way down from heaven to a cross has now been highly exalted, lifted up by the Father. But not just highly exalted. The word means extra exalted. No, it means super exalted. And He has given Him a name which is above every name. We know that there is a force Gravity, a magnetic force that comes because the moon orbits around the earth. That force pulls the tides in and out. In the same way that we see that kind of pull, there is a kind of magnet in this life of Christ, in this death of Christ, that has a drawing power that betrays the apparent impossibility of it when he said it. I mean, think about it. When he said this statement, it was Tuesday before the crucifixion on Friday. At that point, Jesus was not even able to draw those who were around him. They were abandoning him rather than being drawn to him. He was an itinerant working man preacher in a conquered country, and even his closest associates would eventually run away. But look at the absolute accuracy of his statement. The very fact that we're here at Evergreen this morning, 2,000 years later, shows the fulfillment of his statement. We are gathered here half a world and 2,000 years away proving the absolute accuracy of his statement. If I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. At some point in your life, someone lifted up Christ. They put him on display. They explained who he was. And you had an inexplicable draw deep in your soul. Something in your spirit that connected. And he wooed you to himself. You see... That's also what this word means. He, It says, I will draw all men to myself. He didn't say, I'll drive men to myself. I'll drag men to myself. He said, I'll draw them. It's a word that means to woo, to court. He doesn't stand outside your life forcing his way in. He stands outside knocking on the door. Others may use coercion. But Jesus uses persuasion. Others use compulsion. But Jesus uses a quiet attraction. We know about that. I looked it up. For generations, uh, we've understood that the tides control the in and out flow across the beaches of the world's 66 oceans. Every 12 hours and 25 minutes, the tide comes in. Then it goes out. Then it comes in. Then it goes out. There's a mystery and a magnificence of the pull of gravity that is so uh, dependable. But there's something more magnificent than that. Unleashed from Calvary until today. Something more ceaseless than the moon tugging at the tides from time to time. He pulls us into him. And that is when a culture experiences the high tide of revival. Revival. Then the tide goes out, and we have the low tide of secularism. But then the church listens and looks, and he draws us again, and there's another high tide of revival as we gather in this place today. And this is the part that just captures my imagination. Our prayer has to be, O magnificent Lord of the cross, draw us again to the high tide as you draw us together as your people. We've we've read so many novels that try and explain end times that we forgot to consult The actual word of God. Is the Antichrist alive and walking on the earth today? I don't know. Could be. Are we close to the end? Seems like it. Could be. Can I tell you for sure? I had a friend tell me not too long ago. Well, actually, um, a couple of years ago. I have to look up our last conversation. Because he told me in our last conversation, the rapture will occur within two years. You know, folks, the rapture is going to come when the rapture is going to come. We're not to be a people building bunkers and hiding in caves. When Jesus comes back, he expects to find us doing one thing, lifting him Up for people to see. You see, before the cross, his earthly ministry was imprisoned in a tiny territory of a postage stamp sized kingdom. The Messiah, the prophet of Galilee, passed through the cross. And the cross liberated him to become the savior of the whole world. We might call this the golden chain of influence that he has thrown over all of humanity in every generation on every continent. That that, that influence made its way to Europe when the apostle Paul traveled all the way to Macedonia with the good news of the gospel. 1,400 years later, it made it to North America. And Christ is still pulling in that chain today. People say, America's gone. America's gone. It's post-Christian. It's not post-Christian. It's just secular. But that doesn't mean yet that God is finished. Let me tell you something. This is a a side note. In the the Old Testament, one of the strangest commands of God was, God went to Jeremiah and said don't pray for this people anymore. And Jeremiah was heartbroken. Because when God said, don't pray for this people anymore, what he was telling the prophet was, the time for mercy is gone. The opportunity is exhausted. Judgment and wrath are coming and they cannot be stopped. Now, why do I tell you that? Because God tells His people when that's happening. And whether it's this country or any other country on the planet, I have not yet been instructed to stop asking for spiritual awakening. So when we wash our hands and say, well, it's just the end of things and we just got to sort of ride it out to the end. That's not our call to make. Jesus is to be lifted up. And if we do the lifting, He'll do the drawing. We see this all over the world. I mentioned Europe and North America, but in South America, in Brazil, they're coming to Christ by the hundreds of thousands. In Africa, across that continent, God's Spirit is pulling it toward Calvary today. Soon, Africa will be declared a Christian continent. China had 30,000 Christians in 1949. They have so many Christians today that the projection is by the end of this decade, there will be more Christians in China, 350 million more Christians in China than there are citizens in the United States. Christianity, I remember in 1989, I, I studied Christianity in Russia. And the reason I remember that date is because in 1989, it was the 1,000th anniversary of Christianity in Russia. And in the research that I did all the way back in the late 80s, um, I remember finding the, the remnants of the, the KGB, the, the, the KGB that was, that was still there, and, and, and they admitted that Christianity was in Russia, it was in Ukraine, it was in Latvia, it was in Romania. But I'll never forget this comment a member of the KGB guaranteed anonymity said, we've done everything we know and we can't stop it. Well, nice to find somebody who's honest enough to say what we've known all along, what started on the cross of Calvary, will not be stopped. Stopped. And our presence here today in a church called Evergreen and our brothers and sisters who are in cities across this country and in in cities and villages across this world meeting in worship on a Sunday, it is because He said, and I, if I be lifted up, I will draw men from the earth to Me. It is who we are. It is the fulfillment of all that He said. He promised He told us that to live is Christ. Paul tells us that to live is Christ and to die is gain. What does this mean? On this day in 2022, it means that if you are not a follower of Jesus Christ, this is your moment. As best I've known how, I have lifted him up. if there is that sense inside of you in that secret place beneath your heart, if there was this sense of urging to access something that has always been just out of reach, that is Jesus Christ drawing you. He's wooing you. He's courting you. Inviting you to come to Him. If you are a believer and a follower of Jesus, we must remember that the devil has been dethroned. He uses propaganda more than reality to try and trick us into thinking that he's somebody. But the reality is, the revival is not dependent upon our plans and preparations, but upon our willingness and our faithfulness to lift Christ up. And why would we not lift Christ up? Because the devil is a lion that's been detoothed. He roars, but he's got no bite. So will we be the people of God? And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to me. The invitation for you, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, is this today. To go to a quiet place in your mind Close your eyes if you need to. Kneel if you need to do that. And in that quiet place, say, "Lord, I, I'm I'm a believer. I know that you're in me. I know that you've saved me. I know that you've called me. But Lord, am I, am I lifting you up in my words, in my attitudes?" In my actions, what do you want from me? Is there a person that needs a conversation about Jesus? Do you need to put him on display there? Do you need to lift him up? Is there a storm that you're in the middle of? And God is just saying, listen, I want you to put me on display through the storm because when people see that, they're gonna see Jesus. Does he want you to have a conversation? Does he want you to keep your mouth shut? What is it that you need to do to lift up Jesus Christ? We don't have to do the drawing. We don't have to do the saving. We don't have to be responsible for the results. All we do is we lift him up. We put him on high. We make him obvious and visible. And he will do the wooing and the drawing. He will bring people to Himself. Could He do that without us? Absolutely He could, but He chose to let us in on an incredible thing. You know, I got to be in, on the, I got to be in the room when all three of my children were born. An experience that, that you almost can't find words to describe. But I've had those same emotions Every time I've been privileged to see somebody born again. You ever experienced that? Listen, don't go to heaven by yourself. Lift him up, let him draw people. Philip and Andrew had the privilege Taking these Greeks, they said, sir, we would see Jesus. And they escorted them into the presence of Jesus. That's the gift that he's given to us as his followers. We get to take people and escort them into the presence of Jesus. Ask the Spirit if you're doing that, how you can do it better, what you need to do, And may this not fade into the misty memories in the back of your brain, but may it stay in the front of our brain. This verse, John 12, 32, and I, if I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to me. That is why you and I are still taking breath. We are Jesus lifters. Let that be our legacy in this generation, in the low tide of secularism, let us lift Jesus so that the high tide of spiritual awakening one more time can roll across these shores and make us a great land once again. Father, thank you for your word. This... This this statement by Jesus is stunning in its scope, in its boldness. Father, I pray that in this moment, in this place, among this people, even now, You are drawing, wooing, calling us to Yourself. And Father, for those of us who are followers already, May we become lifters. Putting You on display. Highlighting You. Raising visibility so that the world in our sphere of influence can't help but see Jesus. Father, do that in Jesus through us. As your eyes roam to and fro across the earth, may you find in a place called Evergreen a people who are sold out to putting Jesus on display in our generation, in our city, in our nation, and across the globe in our world. Let that be said about us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.